Big Adventures with Brian Durker is brought to you by Arizona River Runners. Just getting started on your own big adventures? Arizona River Runners' three-day Grand Canyon heli, ranch, and raft trip blends authentic western ranch experience with world-class whitewater. Explore secret waterfalls and drift to sleep on the banks of the Colorado River under a blanket of stars. Longer trips are available as well. Let Arizona River Runners take care of the details on your own big adventure. Visit RaftArizona.com. Welcome to Big Adventures. I'm Brian Durker, and I really welcome you this time for so many different reasons. As I record this lead-in, the virus is upon all of us, and I think it's all the more reason for podcasts to be a very important part of your life. But in regards to importance, you know, in all these years of people that I've met in Grand Canyon, the most remarkable contributors to how the industry started were women. And this next guest is no exception to being a really major key player in the industry from way back. Uh, She's going to talk to us about what it was like in the old days starting a river company and helping the outfitter do that. And then as the years have gone on, she's had her own business in booking and uh, world travel. She's got a great history in Grand Canyon and a a remarkable understanding of everybody in this community. And and so Pam Whitney is an honored guest. And, oh, settle back and make yourself a cup of tea or pop yourself a beer and let's Enjoy Pam Whitney. I'm really excited uh, about this conversation. I've always had several questions I wanted to ask you, but why don't we start out? Where were you born? Well, I was born in... uh Baldwin, New York, Long Island, uh, born and raised on Long Island. I spent, went to high school there, and then um, I went to college in upstate New York, a place called Cortland. And from there, I got my degree in teaching. Cortland College? Cortland uh, State University of New York <laughs> at Cortland. It actually changed names three times when I was there, <laughs> because that was during the time that they were um, developing the school state school system. Uh, I got my degree in teaching, and from there I moved to a place called Situate, which is just a little bit south of Boston, and I taught sixth grade in a town called Brockton, Massachusetts. Cool. A small town type school mm-hmm. system? or Well, Brockton was an old shoe manufacturing town, and that's where Rocky Marciano came from. Oh, wow. And uh, that was their big claim to fame. I had the school I taught in was a small, older school. I had 40 kids in my class, uh, and we had to teach everything because it was very drastically underfunded. So it was good. I loved the kids, didn't like the administration. Stayed in the Boston area for another couple of years, and then from there, I decided to give teaching one more shot, and I went to the Virgin Islands. Oh, cool. And taught school down there on St. Croix for a year. And that's where I learned how to scuba dive. And again, teaching just wasn't going to be for me. So I left St. Croix, came back to the States, went 
to real quick. Uh, was <laughs> it was it an English all all English in Saint Croix? Yes, Saint Croix is a um, possession of the U.S. And so right. the schools were uh, run by the federal government, actually, and all of the students were uh, locals. In Saint Croix, because it was a because it was a U.S. possession. A lot of people wanted to come to St. Croix to work. And Crusians, the local people, they didn't like to do manual labor. So we had a lot of uh, from other islands who would come to work oh, in St. Croix and go to school there. It was a pretty crazy such setup. And so how long were you there? I was just there for a year. The island life. Mm-hmm. And that's when I learned how to dive, like I said. And at that point, I decided that I wanted to go back to school for biological oceanography. So I went to Florida State in Tallahassee, and I stayed there for about a year, but just didn't wasn't really working out for me. And at that point, I moved to North Carolina because I had friends there and uh, stayed there for another year and a half. Uh, worked at a place called Sugar Mountain. Anybody from the South knows Sugar Mountain. Oh, yeah, and people from the West know Sugar Mountain, too. So worked there, managed a bar there, and then from there went to Florida for one more hit of warm weather and then decided to move out west and moved to Crested Butte, from Crested Butte to Durango. The world's coldest <laughs> ski area, Crested Butte, eh? Yeah, it was cold. It was beautiful, though. Oh, yeah, that's a gorgeous place to be. And in Durango, I was working at a country western bar, and that's where I met Fred Burke who was the owner of Arizona River Runners. And he offered me a job at his establishment on the banks of the Colorado River. What year was that? That was 1975. Uh-huh. And so his inter- my interview with Fred consisted of uh, his old army buddy, Earl the Pearl, and Fred and me drinking Jim Beam and listening to their old... Army stories. Oh, man. <laughs> at the bar? No, not at the bar in their motel room. <laughs> oh, you little rascal. You let that old man lure you into their... Yes, I did. And the thing that was so funny was I didn't have any nice clothes. I just had jeans. And so I was really worried about what I was going to wear to the interview. But they were laughing because they thought, oh, she's never going to show up in a motel. <laughs> It's never going to happen. And so between all of us, it was pretty funny. Fred's just uh, one of my favorites. I look back on it, and I uh, always appreciated how close you guys were. Uh, He was just a great guy and a a cantankerous old fellow to boot. Well, he had an incredible life. I mean, he reinvented himself on numerous occasions, went broke a couple of times. I mean, when he ended up at Lee's Ferry, he ended up there because he had nowhere else to go. And he had some friends in the in the legislature who were able to get him the job with the USGS. So uh-huh. he came up to measure the water and because he was they were dead broke. And did he own BC from the start, or did he? How how did that work? Well, initially they just. Uh, <clears throat> well, initially when he he was working out of the USGS house there at Lee's Ferry and working for Hatch, 
and trying, they started trying to tell Ted how to run his trips. And Ted said, well, why don't you just start your own company? And so Fred and Carol thought, well, why don't we? And they did. And at that point, they bought one acre of land from the Sealies who own Vermilion Cliffs. Right, the Sealies. And so they had that one acre, which is up in the back where their original trailer, the double wide was on that back corner of the property. And then ran the company out of there. And then I think probably, and Tom or, well, Tom's not here, but Pete could tell you what year that was, where they actually then bought VC, because they didn't buy VC straight out. They didn't have it initially. They bought it after they had been in business for probably a year, maybe well, a wasn't bit more. Well, wasn't there, uh, oh, just real quick for the listener, um, if you are at Lee's Ferry, Arizona, which is the primary put-in to any Grand Canyon River trip, you got to put in at Lee's Ferry. Well, up the road, there's a place called Marble Canyon Lodge, and it's a hotel and a store and a restaurant and gas station and such. Then seven miles down the road is Vermilion Cliffs, which is a, a little hotel, restaurant, bar, and then another seven down the road is Cliff Dwellers. So you got three places that have restaurants and little hotels and stuff. Mm-hmm. So Fred and Carol probably started sixty nine seventy something like that. And so when when Fred they ran it up there, and did they do all the booking and stuff out of Vermilion Cliffs? Were you involved with that? <laughs> yes, they did. That's actually what they hired me for. They hired me to work in the office with Carol. And um, right before I came, prior to my arriving, they didn't have an actual phone. They had a phone in the truck. So if somebody made a call, then the horn on the <laughs> truck, the the horn would beep and they know they had a telephone call and they would get it in the truck. And they were so excited because Arizona Telephone had finally brought a line over uh, from Page because there was talk about, this kind of is off the subject, but it's, it's, in, it's in relation to it. Um, they were, they were going to build a hotel down at Lee's Ferry. Tony Sparks, his family had the concession for down there. Right, right, right. And when you drive down to Lee's Ferry, if you take the river road, if you're past the campground, if you look to the right, you can see there's kind of a bench up there, and that's where the hotel was going to be. There's actually infrastructure. There's actually electric and whatever there to build a hotel Oh wow! that they put in. I'm not sure who put it in, whether it was the park or... I don't think the Sparks, maybe the Sparks family did. But anyway, they had a certain number of years to be able to do that, and... Prior to that, they just had the trailers for the hotel rooms, and they had the little restaurant store down there at least. In their warehouse, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so Arizona Telephone was thinking that there was actually going to be some real development coming into the area. So that's kind of how they got involved with bringing a phone system in there. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. So when... When I started to work for Fred and Carol, that was what I was hired for. I was hired to work in the office, order the food, do all the bookings, because they did it all from Vermilion Cliffs. Our office was in the back of the Vermilion Cliffs bar. Yeah, and I remember sitting in that <laughs> office with Fred, and it was a sacred place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Fred had it. He bought, he, say, in 77, he took over ownership of it. And then um, 
Golly, he was quite a central feature there. Uh, that bar, of course, that was the bar everybody went to, and he had his boatman living in the hotel rooms. When did you first meet? Ma- when did you first meet Whale? I met Whale. Um, not that first. I don't think I might have met him the first year I was there. It's possible because he was he was working, but he came to. I mean, and so he was in and out. Everybody was in and out of the of the bar at Fruit Million Cliffs. Oh yeah. Every. I mean, you met everybody. You yep. got to see them all. It and was a carousel. Exactly, and there was there would always be that early spring day night when everybody would come back after they'd been gone all winter, and there would be this just. This incredible night at Vermilion Cliffs, but um, so I probably met Whale. I don't know, sometime in the seventies, and then he did come to work for Fred for a while. Well, I know he lived at Vermilion Cliffs right. when he was working for Wilderness World. Even I mean, there was a little bit of overlap of Fred let him stick around there through the Maybe. winters and stuff. But the, yeah, I can't I can't recall the exact year. It was sometime in the late seventies because I remember doing a trip with him and. Um, we got stuck in Hans on, you know, what became later known as Whale Rock. Were you on that trip? Mm-hmm. That's a little adventure. Why don't we just go ahead and hear that <laughs> about that whole trip right now? Well, I don't know if you want to hear about that whole trip. But, um, well, it was just a regular old eight-day trip back then. Back in those days, Arizona River Runners ran an eight-day trip from Lee's Ferry down to Diamond Creek. And um, we had a family on that trip from Hawaii. And plus we had Connie Tibbetts' parents were on that trip. And I, the other boatman was Don Neff. And it was Whale. And the water was, at that, back then the water would fluctuate quite a bit. So we were coming through Hans and we got stuck. And the water, everybody was like trying to push Boat, you know, trying not push the boat, but trying to jump up and down, trying to get it off and swinging ammo cans on ropes to get, <laughs> to try to get it to shore and to pull it off. And we're all sitting there thinking, well, we just have to wait for the water to come up. Then we'll get off the rock. So, and that's exactly what happened. We just waited for the water to come up. And well, in the meantime, doing all these other shenanigans and, um, Got floated off, and we were back in business again. But later in that trip, that was the same trip that, oh, he's a famous country western singer, Rex Allen, who was a, he was a friend of Fred and Carol's, and he was on the trip with his sons. And Carol always, Carol had wanted to go on the trip, but we never, all three of us could never be gone from the office at the same time. So she decided that she would hike in at Whitmore disguised as a hippie because back then people would, you know, they could hike in and they'd, they'd hitch a ride across the river. Or something These were like hippie times. Mm-hmm, they were hippie times. So uh, we were all in on the whole thing. And I was riding on Wells' boat and we got there and Carol was standing on the side with her thumb out. And so we stopped, pulled in and picked her up and Meanwhile, Fred's on the other boat. He's on Don on Neff's boat, and he's freaking out because that's like completely not what you can do if you work for Arizona River Runners. You cannot pick that up somebody. That goddamn whale! Oh, that goddamn whale! And he's going on. I mean, he was just beside himself. So we pull in just a little bit further downstream, and 
Carol goes in the bushes to hide and Fred gets off the boat and he's so livid. He comes running up to me and he says, tell me he didn't do it. Tell me he didn't do it. I'm firing him right on the spot. And I said, well, it, you know, I don't know, Fred. It's okay. It's okay. And so then Carol comes out of the bushes and Fred's so furious that he doesn't even recognize her. <laughs> <laughs> and starts going on and she's like, Fred, Fred, it's me. It's me. And so it finally he gets it. So that night it was a huge huge party. Oh yeah, it's the hoedown now. Yeah, it was a huge party and all through the trip, uh Rex Allen had been having trouble with his sleeping duffel trying to get it back in the bag and whatever. And the next morning, he came down and his bag was all really well tied up and it looked great. And he was one of the first people down. And I said, Rex, what happened? And he said, well, darling, I figured this out. He said, the trick is you never take it out. You just fall down and sleep on it. (laughs) Sleep in the dirt. (laughs) You just sleep right on it. So, um, but that was quite a trip. Oh yeah. That sounds like a fantastic trip. Is that before Connie Tibbetts was running a boat or? Nope, she was running a boat then. She didn't want to go with her parents. She didn't want her parents to go with her. So <laughs> so they went on a trip that she wasn't on. <laughs> I remember uh, I remember Whale in so many different ways, just like you do, because we were so very close. But uh, I remember his relationship with Fred was like a comedy skit. You know, Fred would be ragging on him or go do this or go do that. And Whale would just kind of blow him off. And, oh, it went back and forth and back and forth. Right. And the thing about Whale was he, if there was work that had to be done, he could get it done. But he was going to get it done in his time. And But he was always just so welcoming. I just remember so many guides would get really uptight when they were driving the boat or whatever. But as far as Whale was concerned, everybody could be in the back of the boat with him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he loved that. He just loved having everybody in the back of the boat while he was driving down the river. He was he was a really, he was great. Well, I was sitting with a bunch of boatmen one evening not all that long ago. And we were laughing about, you know, that none of us will have anything ever named after us. No matter how long we've been there. And Whale has about eight things <laughs> named after him. There's the Whale Rock. There's the uh, Whale's Armpit. There's uh, probably about four different rocks that are named the Whale Rock or the Lineup Rock. Or, but, uh, yeah, he's just a wonderful friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom and Whale were dear friends. But uh, he, boy, she always had her eye on him because he was a bad uh, influence on her son and so but she'd always we'd always have him over to thanksgiving and christmas dinners and stuff like that and and he'd get caught smoking pot on the front porch or you know she she and uh well had a tremendously cantankerous but loving friendship but one time i'd just gotten a new apartment and she goes now brian i have something to ask you you're not going to let Whale move right in to this new apartment, are you? And I, I laughed and I said, what choice have I, Mom? What choice do I have in that matter? And it just made him mad as hell. The next day, Whale moved in. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's a wonderful guy. He was. He was really very sweet. And, sweet man. and so uh, I guess the next uh, 
Question, you were with ARR up until the I, sale? <clears throat> I was. I was with Arizona River Runners until what happened was Fred and Carol were getting tired of being in the river business. And so I was running it, and but I was thinking I wanted to move on and do something different. So their big fear was that I would leave before they fe- before they got to sell it. So they had been trying for a couple of years to sell the company. And um, I was, they thought they had it sold in 85 and the deal fell through. And then in 86, I went to Bhutan for about a month. And while I was gone, they uh, did the deal with uh, Bill Gleckler and Bruce Winters. So when I came back from Bhutan, they had already sold the company. And that was in May of 86. And so I didn't have a job because Bill and Bruce wanted to run the company themselves, which made sense. They moved had moved up. So they kept Arizona River Runners at Vermilion Cliffs for that summer. And so that summer I worked on the river with Tim Whitney. Um, and we just did a bunch of trips. And I didn't get paid because that's back in the day when you just work your way. And Fred had this thing about, excuse me, not wanting me to work for the Bill and Bruce. It just was this thing. I don't know what, I never could quite figure it out, but he just didn't. Because you were Fred's. <laughs> I was Fred's, right, exactly. <laughs> I was Fred's. So, um, so we still, Tim and I lived at Vermilion Cliffs, but uh, I only had to work for free. And um, so that summer, I spent that summer on the river. It was great. Turned out to be a good thing. And when let's let's talk a little bit about our friend Tim Whitney. When did you first meet him? I first met him uh, when he worked at Fort Lee through uh, a mutual friend. So you Pablo. had known him for a good long while. Yeah, well, not as long as I knew his brother. Bob Whitney was working at Fort Lee when I first right, started at right. Arizona River. Great family, the Whitneys. Yeah, and then um, Tim. I met Tim through Pablo, and he started working for Arizona River Runners in 84. And he used to like to run around saying that I was his boss. That's how we met. So, <laughs> But we had met, like I say, briefly before that. And so he came to work for ARR in 84, and we got together in 85 and stayed together. That was it. Yeah. Well, then, then it was the Rock of Gibraltar uh, from that point on. And for the listener, uh, Pam and Tim, uh, this is uh, before an illustrious chapter in both of their lives, but uh, like probably one of the most identifiable river couples I've ever known of. But uh, so you guys are together. You're running some traps for, for ARR. Uh, what year was it that Fred... Passed on. Fred passed away in 2005, November 2005. 2005. Carol passed in July of 98. She she predeceased him by seven years. To the surprise of everybody. To the surprise of everybody. Fred, Carol, everybody. Yeah. Because uh, she was quite a bit younger than he was. Um, but you don't usually get to choose when you when, when your number's up. It's, apparently not. Uh-uh. But um, let's let's talk a little bit about a great chapter in your and Tim's life, uh, the rivers and oceans. So, 
that summer in 86, we worked on the river and we were trying to figure out what we were going to do going forward. And people on our trips, we talked to people on the trips and they kept saying, do what you know, do what you know. And so for Tim and I, the thing we knew was Grand Canyon. And I had the connections with the outfitters and Tim had the connections with the guides. And back then, if you wanted to book a river trip, you called the park service on their toll number. They sent you a list of all the outfitters. You called all the outfitters. They sent you their brochures. And then you tried to decide who you were going to do a river trip with. So then you'd call the outfitter only to find out that they didn't have any space. And you'd go through this whole list. At that time, there were 21 outfitters until you finally found a trip. So it was a really long process and expensive in, it, in its own way, just because nobody had a toll-free number back then. Yeah, phone calls. Oh, and there was alone. no internet. No, it was all phone calls and or writing them, and so it was difficult. And we decided we there was a, there were a couple of companies who were doing, kind of trying to do wholesaling where they would book trips for different outfitters, but they didn't really know Grand Canyon like we did. And we decided that that was going to be what we were going to do. And we were going to book trips in Grand Canyon in the summer. And we were going to book trips in Baja in the winter because the Colorado River goes into the Sea of Cortez. And so oh, it made all it made perfect sense to do both and have a, a basically a year-round business. So we created a brochure and we put together all of the mailing lists that we could find from our past trips and from Arizona River Runners. And I traded out time with Jane Foster at Marble Canyon to use her computer. All, I mean, it was really, we were really putting it together on a wing and a prayer. The, the old seat of the pants approach. <laughs> Definitely the seat of the pants. And we finally got it out. And I kept saying to Tim, I just want to book one person, just one person. Then I'll know that we're real. And, uh, our first customer was a man named Franz Wickler from Germany. So we had our first customer. And that first season, we actually booked 72 people on the river. And we were thrilled. <laughs> yeah, you were off to the races. We were off to the races. Well, and you started out with an international uh, guest, <laughs> which is kind of cool. I know. He had been on a river trip with, I don't remember whether it was Arizona River Runners or, but he just took a chance with us. It was, you know, he said, and we just hit him at the right moment. And um, so that's kind of where how we started. And we just slowly built up our clientele, built up our mailing list, kept a good relationship with the outfitters, tried to do what they needed us to do. The big thing the outfitters wanted to wanted was to make sure that when we booked somebody with them, that the person knew they were going with uh, Arizona River Runners or Western River Expeditions. They didn't want them to think they were going with rivers and oceans. That was one of their big pet peeves about travel agencies. And all the outfitters back then were all very, they were individuals. They weren't businessmen. They were people who had gotten involved in river running and ended up with a river company, not because of their business acumen, but because they loved the river. And so and they, they loved the river and they didn't love each other that much as I recall. No, most no. Of <laughs> well, they had very, they have, I always used to say that outfitters have memories like elephants because they could always remember some slight 
that one or the other did right. along the way. It's I so mean, true. It was so amazing. They could remember. I mean, years back, they'd say, yeah, remember when he did that? Remember, that should have been mine or or whatever it happened to be. Or they would pass great judgment on the style in which you did your business if you didn't do things like they did. I mean, there was a lot of, everybody did it a little bit different, whether it was the rigs or the trips or the, they were a cantankerous bunch with each other for the most part. They were. And they all had their own pet projects. Like Martin Linton kept wanting to get his stories certified for six people. So, and not have to wear life jackets after Diamond Creek. That was, those were his two big things. And Every outfitter meeting that would happen, he'd be standing up there going, now, I think that those doors could be certified for six people. They can fit six. And I really don't think we should have to wear those life jackets. And that was his program. And then poor Georgie, she'd get beat up by all those guys because she always wanted to go. Right. She always wanted to leave on Saturday. So she'd stand up and say, well, it's just so hard for me because I have to get those, all those people and rent those trucks to get over there to do... and everybody would just go, no, Georgie, you're not getting all the Saturdays. Because, of course, they had to figure out when the launch dates were. But, um, yes, they were all very, had their own way and their own ideas about doing things. And they were very protective of their turf. I mean, I, I actually, with Fred, I ran into the wild thing when I got my first government contracts to do the scientific work. And Fred actually protested it. So it went clear across the desk of the governor, and uh, then they they gave it to me again, and he protested it a second time. But, you know, it wasn't a friendship thing. I He kind of dubbed me the renegade outfitter. But I always just loved him, and he'd always invite me into his office. And, I mean, it wasn't the, uh, that he didn't really like me. He didn't like the outfitters not having control of those types of things and stuff. And I always kind of understood that. But they're definitely, most of those guys were protective of their turf. Very much so. And that's still true. And that's still true. That's still very true. I mean, if if they see any type of what they would consider infringement on what should be commercial business as opposed to non-commercial business, they're all over it. I mean, they don't. Oh, they are, yeah. They don't let anything slip by. They're very vigilant when it comes to that type of thing. Now, let's talk about a little bit more about rivers and oceans as far as how you branched out and the different types of trips. And uh, how did that design develop? Well, what happened with rivers and oceans, really, what really changed rivers and oceans was in, um, we kept writing to the New York Times because they they used to have this question and answer section in the New York Times travel area. And this one man kind of answered the questions. His name was Carl. I can't remember his last name. So every once in a while, he would have a question about Grand Canyon River trips and he would answer it, but he wasn't, he wasn't giving them the right answer. So every time we'd see that, we'd write him and say, you know, we know more about Grand Canyon River trips than anybody around. So he finally took us up on it. And on Easter Sunday in 1992, he published a question about Grand Canyon River trips, and the answer was for river, was from Rivers and Oceans. And that just the next day, we were bringing in two more phone lines 
because it just, our business just went nuts. It just buzzed in. What was the publication? What, what was New York it? Times. Oh, that's right. Okay. It was the New York Times, the Sunday Times on Easter Sunday. And it got picked up by the uh, wire service. So it was all over the country. I mean, it was just an amazing, again, you have to remember that the internet wasn't yeah, so happening. That, that would be an amazing ta- transformation for you. Yeah. It was, and that started it for us as far, I mean, that put us into the next phase of rivers and oceans. And in the meantime, because Grand Canyon was a finite uh, entity, we were always looking for ways to expand the business. And Tim and I are both divers. And so we kept trying to get people down to Baja. Baja was a little bit harder because it was Mexico. And people just didn't realize what an incredibly beautiful place Baja is. And so... We kept working on the Baja aspect and we kept working on the small ship cruises and we would put together small uh, specialized diving trips. So we dove, we went all over the world diving, um, mostly with charter trips that we put together. And um, Very cool. So that kind of was a different branch of Rivers and Oceans. But the bread and butter for Rivers and Oceans was always Grand Canyon. Yeah. Well, that's your your roots and the real substance of where... Where our heart was, always. Yeah. It enabled Tim to continue to guide uh, a a few trips a year. And um, I feel that we, the people who we put on river trips in Grand Canyon were knew exactly what they were getting into. We never tried to sell somebody a trip just to sell them a trip. We tried to sell them a trip that was going to work for them. And then in 93, 94, I guess 94 is when we we got our first website. So it was early on. We were early on with, with a you, web you presence. Were, you were jumping, if it was that, that early, yeah, you were jumping all over the new technology. Isn't it amazing how you look back and uh, how these things all worked as, as reliant as we are on these smartphones and internet and computers and all this stuff that we just, everything works off of now. But it wasn't that long ago where it was a phone call in the pickup truck, right? I mean, it was a phone call in the pickup truck at Arizona Riveters, and then it was a dial-up for the internet from uh, InfoMagic, which ap- ha- happened to be located just down the road from where we lived. <laughs> I mean, it was just Crazy. it was just fortuitous that our neighbor happened to be the internet provider for Flagstaff. He was the first person to bring internet service into Flagstaff. Yeah, I remember it. Info mm-hmm. Magic. Are they still a viable business? Or no, no. no Joel I, they, left. They it. got buried. Yeah, mm-hmm. they got bought by somebody by else. the big boys. Yeah. yeah, but no, that was that was if you remember that was the internet service in Flagstaff way back in the day. And, you know, through those years of growth, I I know you started adding some employees and with that infrastructure of the internet, it must have been a major bump for you. And then the Times thing, uh, not all that long ago, you sold the company. Yes. And how many employees did you have and what what was the... Well, Tim and I were always hands-on owners. And so most of the time we'd have three employees besides ourselves. Uh Uh-huh. Because you could cut a pretty wide swath with three good, well-trained employees. Right. We had some great... Great employees, we really did. We had some really excellent employees. I knew some of them for sure, and they were great. <laughs> so, and then what year was it that you finally passed it on to Robbie? I sold the company in uh, 
January 1st, 2014. And then I worked for Robbie for about six months in 2014, full-time, and then moved into half-time and actually retired, retired in in December of 2014. Uh-huh. Tell me a little bit about your, I know you travel still and you're, uh, one thing that, if you don't mind me mentioning, Tim, unfortunately, uh, passed on at what year was? He passed in, uh, January, 2012. 2012. Yeah. And a tremendous guy. I've got such great memories of Tim too. Uh, he was a dear friend of all of ours, but, uh, then you sell the company, and then you travel a bunch. Where, what kind of places have you been going? Well, um, this past August, I went to the Galapagos, which is was a place now that I'd always wanted adventure. to go. Mm-hmm. I'd always wanted to go to the Galapagos, and I was surprised how similar it was to Baja because it was the dry season, and so you could see the topography and the geology, and it's got that same volcanic um, tuft. And it looks, the islands look so much like Baja. When I was showing somebody slides, I showed them, not slides, but pictures. I showed them pictures of the Galapagos trip. And then I showed them, I said, but now you have to see these pictures of the Baja right after it. So you can see how much it looks alike, how much they look alike. So the Galapagos was great. Lots of great animals, but very regulated because they're trying to protect it. That was my next question is what sort of accessibility did you have? Could you hike around and only in certain places or? They have, they all the boats that do trips down in the Galapagos are given an itinerary. They have basically a 15-day itinerary that they can um, divide up into more than one trip, but they still have to do that particular itinerary. They have to, so they have to go from point A to point B to point C. And when they get to the different places, they have things that they can do. They can go for a hike, maybe. You can go for a hike, you can go for a kayak, you could go for a snorkel. But it's regulated as to what you can do so that you never see a lot of other boats. And when you go to shore, the maximum group size is only 16. So although there were 48 people on our on our ship, we had we would have four different groups that would go to the island when we stopped and not necessarily all at the same time and definitely not on the same trail at the same time. Uh So they split it up that way to keep the impact down and there was no going off the trail. Plus you couldn't just go on your own hike. You had to stay with the group. So it's quite, quite regulated. It's very regulated. Yes. Very much so. Kudos. I mean, that's good. Oh, they have to do it. They have to do it. Otherwise it would, and what their big challenge is right now is that they have a lot of people who are not doing the cruises they can they can handle. They can regulate them. The ship size can't be more than 100 passengers, has to be an Ecuadorian crew. But then people do land packages. And from the land packages, they do one-day trips. And they're having trouble regulating those, like where, they, where people are going. I mean, they, they can do one days, but so they can only go in a, a smaller radius, but they still are not having trouble with the regulation. So is everybody living off the boats or is there like a Galapagos village? What, yeah, what's there's, the layout? Well, there's Baltra is where you fly into and that's, a, there's a town there. And then there's one other little town that's on, I think it's on Isabella. I'm not sure, but it's another small town, which is really small and that's it. 
on the other, the rest of the islands, they're not inhabited. Right. So um, there's only those two areas where you can come and go from. Um, but yeah, they're living on the boats, people cl- doing trips. But like I say, you can go and do what they call a land package and you can go, you know, fly into Baltra and then take a ferry or a, a boat to, I think it's, I should have known, I should have looked before, but Isabella, I'll say Isabella. But they have to do it. Yeah. Because there's so much pressure on it. Yes, there's so it's much pressure. critical uh, to the habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Where are you going to go next? Well, on that same trip, uh, I went to Machu Picchu for another uh, five, six days, which had been a place that I'd always wanted to yeah. go. Yeah, no, me too. I need to get there someday. You need to get there soon because now what they're doing is they're going to put an airport into the Sacred Valley, which is... Right now, the only way to get there is to fly into Cusco. And from Cusco, you can take a train or you or can take a van or do the hike. But they're going to put an air, they're putting an airport oh, in there. It's terrible. It's, it's, it's like a terrible addition to the whole area. And in Machu Picchu, again, it's regulated. They let around 5,000 people a day go there. And, but not everybody gets an entrance time, the same entrance time. So you have like a morning entrance, a midday entrance afternoon entrance. You're only supposed to spend four hours there. You do have to take, you could do the Inca Trail, but if you're doing the Inca Trail, then it's four days, three nights, and you have to be guided. You can't do it on your own any longer. Uh, Again, they let 500 people a day go on the Inca Trail. So they're trying to protect it. They're doing their best, but it's, it's such a tough thing because that tourism is huge money. For the country, and and that's that's always the big driving it. force. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a tough balance there. Well, and it with with the with conversation about that delicate balance of visitation, that's one thing on this planet. But let me ask you: You've been all over the world, uh, both spending time in the oceans and the land and stuff. Um, how are we going to get as environmentalists, or how are we going to get people's attention in time, or is it too late? I mean, uh, this, and I mentioned this on, uh, I've mentioned this on all my talks with people, uh, the the highs and lows of different administrations, or I call it the swinging pendulum of environmental security, and we're in a particularly bad swing on the pendulum right now with the reduction of land, uh, protected lands. But how are, uh, is it too late to get to the attention? And is it just impossible because of the economic drive, the population drive? Or what's your take on the future here? Well, I think that the biggest thing that you have to do is you have to get the locals involved so they understand that conservation is in their best interest. What happens so often is that people come in and they make money off of an, off of an area and they don't leave any of the money for the locals. They don't leave, they're not invested. All they see are people coming. It's like Africa is a great example where they, in order to continue to have people come and see the wildlife, you have to protect the wildlife and you have to get the locals invested in, in keeping that protection active. But They've got their population growing, but they're not seeing the economic benefit of people coming and going. Certain countries like Tanzania, they're working on that, trying to get the locals involved. And so that the money stays with 
the people as opposed to leaving the country. And I think that's true like for in diving. Diving is a great example. I mean, people have to understand that if they fish the reef out, nobody's going to come to dive that reef. And yes, they'll have fish, but they if they do it in a way that I mean they'll have fish, but they won't have the economic benefit of people coming to see those fish any longer. So they have to find a different way or a way to regulate how many fish they actually take. Back in Micronesia, what they used to do is they used to dynamite the reef. And so they would kill all the fish. They'd kill everything. And then people didn't, you know, the reef was dead and nobody wanted to come and dive there. So they have to, again, be invested Local, the investment has to start on a local level. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And um, as far as the the population and the the pressures that come with that population, uh, people have to be on board to protect the different areas. The same thing, like with the Galapagos, you have to be supportive. You support the idea that, yeah, that the reason we're doing this, we're only having 16 people is because on this these different excursions is so that we're not overrunning and stay on the trails. I mean, just like in Grand Canyon, we did a lot of th- different things down there to make, to make it so that we were protecting the canyon because those beaches and the different places weren't getting replenished like they had been. And they did put limits on the number of people. And maybe that's part of what you have to do. I mean, like I say, in Machu Picchu, they do have limits on the numbers of people. And yeah, people get mad and say, well, I should be able to do it on my own. I should be able to do it the way I want to do it. But if they understand what the big picture is, that if they follow some of those conservation rules, then it'll be there for somebody else to come and see it. And the experience that they actually have will be so much more meaningful Again, it's education. Education is the thing that's going to ed- education will help us in so many ways. It'll help us uh, on the ground level too. Uh, the immediate hands on the ground level for sure on the ground level, and to you know to have again being invested in the resource and encouraging people to be invested in the resource for a long time, not just for a short time, like a kind of hit and run type thing. I mean, think of Moab. I mean, what's going on up there? Fantastic example. <laughs> and, you know, and it's not immediate gratification, this this uh, plight of the environment. Uh, you're not going to get quick fixes. And, you're, you know, it's, it's a big, long term. Uh, and only the optimistic will pursue it, of course. I, I, unfortunately, I talk to people that are, have already thrown their hands up uh, in a lot of ways, and it's it's more of a tragedy in their minds, which it is. But I still like the optimistic outlook to where maybe we can get a clue in time. Well, we have to keep working on it. We just have to keep working on it, and not and do everybody if everybody does their own little part. And when you're a tourist, when you're out there choosing a company to who you're going to do a trip with, is also part of that. I mean, it's part of being conscious as opposed to being unconscious when you're traveling. Well, and, you know, with, with that, um, it's pretty easy to investigate a company and see what they're doing uh, and see what kind of involvement they have with things that matter to you, like uh, conservation and protectionism and, and things like that. Being a good, you can be a good eco-traveler mm-hmm. and uh, 
Well, I, I see a hours already flown by. <laughs> I told you it would. You did say that, Brian. We'll look forward to our next visit, Pierre. I mean, I can't thank you enough for coming in here, but I've always been a big admirer of you. And uh, it's really nice just to sit down and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. My pleasure. Well, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Let a Grand Canyon River trip be your big adventure. Arizona River Runner's three-day, two-night trip gives you the enchantment of a Western ranch experience, the thrill of a helicopter ride through millions of years of geology, and the rush of Colorado River Rapids. Take a weekend to unplug as the Arizona River Runner's talented guides show you the best of what the Grand Canyon has to offer. Visit RaftArizona.com to learn more. Big Adventures is produced by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bookner. Bill Gleckler and his mandolin provide our music. If you like our show, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts.